0: around the campfire and let me tell you a story. Today we're going to be talking about Vladimir Komarov and the lost cosmonauts. Human beings have always had an unbreakable desire to explore. We've traveled to the far corners of the map, dived deep below the waves, and figured out how to fly. None of these adventures have been without danger. In fact, that's part of the reason they seem to thrill us. And there's one frontier that's been hanging over us for millennia. Literally. Look up and you'll see it. Even though the freezing, icy, endless void of outer space is clearly inhospitable to the fragile human body, we just can't seem to help ourselves from trying to launch ourselves out of Earth's atmosphere. There were two major players in the early scramble for the stars, the United States and the Soviet Union. Both of them reached incredible milestones in human history, but both of them suffered terrible losses along the way. Next episode, we'll talk about the early American space program, with some stories you may be more familiar with. But today, we'll discuss the fate of some of the early Soviet space pioneers, including the first death in any space program, Valentin Bondarenko, the failed mission of Soyuz 1, the chilling death of Vladimir Komarov, and the conspiracy theory about the lost cosmonauts. Let's start with a little background. In 1926, Robert Goddard, known as the father of modern rocketry, launched the first liquid-fueled rocket. In 1942, Germany terrifyingly launched the first successful ballistic missile, called V-2, but luckily only used them at the very end of the war. The Soviet Space Agency, which didn't really have a snappy acronym like NASA, was created in the 1950s. Scientists in the Russian Empire had been researching and experimenting with rocketry as early as the 1930s, but had been set back a bit because Stalin exiled, murdered, and imprisoned many of the country's scientists and intellectuals. But after World War II, The Soviet Union forcibly moved thousands of German scientists inside the country, put them together with their own engineers, and restarted the space program. The launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik 1 into orbit in 1957, the first man-made satellite in space in human history, was a massive achievement. And the United States freaked out about the sudden potential for space warfare, and of course, a brand new kind of competition. This was the start of the space race. Strapping a human being into a metal contraption and launching them into the stars has been dangerous from the start, but the space race added pressure, time constraints, and rapid changes. In the 1960s, the Soviet Union established Star City near Moscow, a top-secret military-run training center where cosmonauts, which is just the term for Russian astronauts, and researchers lived with their families. Although the U.S. definitely knew where it was. And the Soviets didn't call it Star City, they actually called it Closed Military Townlet No. 1, a nice homey name. But this wasn't just a military base. It was a fully functional home to thousands of people, with schools, a post office, a movie theater, a train station, stores, homes, and a museum. Today it has a population of about 6,000. The Soviet Union actually had about 50 of these so-called closed cities that worked on secret research projects on everything from nuclear weapons to submarines, but Star City was for the space race. The United States had a few closed towns as well, like Los Alamos from episode 1, but many less than the Soviet Union did. Over 3,000 Soviet Air Force pilots applied for the cosmonaut training program after medical screenings at military bases. 102 made the second round of cuts and went through more physical and mental tests. 20 made it into Air Force Group 1 and were brought to the brand-new Cosmonaut Training Center in Star City on March 13, 1960. The men who were chosen were all young, mostly under 30 years old, which was different from the American program, which chose older, more experienced pilots. These 20 men were Ivan and Ikayev, Pavel Belyev, Valery Bikovsky, Valentin Filatyev, Viktor Gorbko, Anatoly Kartashov, Yevgeny Krunov, Alexei Leonov, Grigory Nelyubov, Andrian Nikolaev, Pavel Popovich, Mars Rafikov, Georgi Shonin, German Titov, Valentin Varlamov, Boris Volinov, Dmitry Zaykin, and three that we'll talk about today. Valentin Bunderenko, Yuri Gagarin, and Vladimir Komarov. Twelve of these men would actually fly into space. Four were fired after conflicts with the leadership. Three had medical issues. One, we'll talk about it in a second. I don't have time to give you the entire history of the Soviet space program today. We're going to focus on its martyrs. And unfortunately for him, the first of those martyrs was the youngest of the group, Valentin Bondarenko. Valentin Vasilyevich Bondarenko was born in Kharkov, modern-day Ukraine. During World War II, Bondarenko's father went off to fight, and Bondarenko and his mother struggled throughout the war. Bondarenko loved aviation for his entire childhood, growing up in a time where military heroes were idolized. He attended the Kharkov Higher Air Force School and joined the aviation club. In 1954, he graduated and went to an aviation military academy. While in school, he met and married Galina Semenova-Rikova, who worked in the medical field, and they had a son, Alexander, the same year. Bondarenko graduated in 1957, the same year Sputnik 1 was launched into orbit so it was easy to see how he would be swept up in the national dreams of reaching the stars. After graduation, Bondarenko joined the Soviet Air Force and became a senior lieutenant. In 1960, Bondarenko joined the first group of 20 cosmonauts at Star City. The cosmonauts became close with each other during their off time. They skied, hunted, played hockey, helped each other study. Bondarenko was the youngest member at 23 and earned the affectionate nicknames Valentin Jr., and Tinkerbell. He was a well-liked member of the team, a good singer, described as mild-mannered, and a good tennis player. On May 31st of that year, he started training to be part of the Vostok program, which would launch the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin, in April of 1961. The cosmonauts went through hundreds of tests to see how they would react to what space would be like, although, of course, no one had been there yet. On March 13, 1961, the cosmonauts began an experiment in what they called the Chamber of Silence, and it was exactly as fun as it sounds. The Chamber of Silence was a bare room with only a metal bed, a chair, a table, a hot plate and saucepan, a toilet, and sometimes some paper and pens, books, wood and knives for whittling or logic puzzles. Sometimes random classical music would play to test brain response, but otherwise it was soundproof. Scientists would turn on a light to tell the man inside to stick sensors on his body or take them off for four hours of tests a day. The rest of the time was empty. The men didn't know when they went in how long they would be in there for. They just had to wait and see. Bondarenko was the 17th out of the 20 men to enter the chamber. A few days before, he took his formal cosmonaut portrait, wanted the only surviving pictures of him. 10 days into the 15-day experiment, something went terribly wrong. The air was over 50% oxygen to mimic the conditions inside the spaceship, much higher than average air, which is about 21% oxygen. Bondarenko was taking off his biosensors with cotton balls covered in rubbing alcohol to take away the stickiness. He tossed the ball towards the trash without looking, but missed, and the soaked cotton hit the hot plate. A fire quickly erupted. If you know anything about fire, it loves oxygen. The sealed chamber was its perfect environment and made everything in the room more flammable. Bondarenko tried to put it out with the wool sleeves of his jumpsuit, which also caught fire. The chamber was pressurized, which meant it took half an hour for the horrified doctor outside and the team that rushed over to open it by painstakingly releasing air through the valves in the door, which was 16 inches of solid lead. By the time they reached him, he was alive, but in rough condition, curled up in a ball on the floor. He had third-degree burns over almost his entire body. His jumpsuit melted, his hair burned, his eyes destroyed. He gathered whatever strength he had left to repeat over and over again, It's my fault. I'm so sorry. No one else is to blame. The scientists wrapped him in a blanket and rushed him to Botkin Hospital under the fake name Sergeyev Ivanov. The doctor who treated him eventually spoke about it in a 1984 book. He said that a man described to him as Sergeyev, a 24-year-old Air Force lieutenant, was brought into the emergency room. He said, quote, I couldn't help shuddering. The whole of him was burnt. The body was totally denuded of skin. The head of hair. There were no eyes in the face. It was a total burn of the severest degree, but the patient was alive. Unfortunately, Sergeyev was doomed, and yet all of us were eager to do something, anything, to alleviate his terrible suffering, unquote. The doctor heard Bondarenko whispering through his burned lips, too much pain, do something please to kill the pain, unquote. When they tried to give him an IV, the only undamaged skin was on the soles of his feet, where the fire had been blocked by his boots, But they succeeded in giving him pain medication, which was really all they could do. The doctor described how another young Air Force officer came to the hospital to stay with Bondarenko and report his condition, and who told the doctor some basic details about the experiment gone wrong. Later, the doctor saw the man's face in the paper and realized it had been Yuri Gagarin, who was Bondarenko's final companion. Bondarenko died 16 hours after the explosion, from shock. Nikolai Kamanin, the director of the cosmonaut program, and a name you might want to remember for this episode, criticized the experiment, saying it was poorly organized. Bondarenko was buried in Kharkov, where his parents were living. A crater on the moon is named in his honor. He was given the heroic award, the Order of the Red Star, after his death, and his family was, quote, given all that is necessary, as befits the family of a cosmonaut, unquote. His widow continued working in Star City, and his son, five years old at the time of the accident, later joined the Air Force like his father. The Soviet leadership did not want to announce this massive failure, but Bondarenko had already been photographed and filmed as part of the first 20 men chosen for the program. They couldn't just pretend he didn't exist, right? Well, that's exactly what they did. The story of his life and death, his very existence at all, was only admitted to the public in the mid-1980s. The Soviet government only came fully clean about the death in 1986, 25 years after the tragedy. When Bondarenko was buried, it was as an Air Force pilot who died working for the Air Force, not as a cosmonaut. His grave read, quote, "...with fond memories from your pilot friends." Unquote. There was a debate over the idea that if the Soviets had released details of the accident earlier, it could have prevented the Apollo 1 accident, which also involved a high-oxygen fire. Later on, the Soviet Prime Minister, Nikita Khrushchev, was talking about another accident and said, I believe the cause of the accident should be announced for two reasons. First, so that people who still have no idea what happened may be consoled. Second, so that scientists might be able to take the necessary precautions to prevent the same thing from ever happening again. On top of that, I believe the United States should be informed of what went wrong. After all, Americans too are engaged in the exploration of space, unquote. But I guess this idea hit him later because they didn't share anything about Bondarenko at the time. But it seems pretty clear that the Americans were well aware of these dangers without the information about Bondarenko. But I'm sure they would have appreciated hearing about it. Eventually, the world did find out about the youngest cosmonaut and the world's first space program, Fatality. His headstone was rightfully changed. The inscription now reads, quote, With fond memories from your pilot and cosmonaut. Valentin Bondarenko was the first known cosmonaut or astronaut to die during the space race, and his death and what followed has fed the lost cosmonaut mythos for decades, which we'll get back to at the end of the episode. But let's move on for now. The top six men in the program, known as the Vanguard Six, were picked out to be the possible first men in space in 1961. Kamanian put them through extensive training, and then they were evaluated by a committee to determine who would be the first men in space. They were ranked. Yuri Gagarin was first, then Titov, Nelyubov. Nikolaev, Bikovsky, and Popovich, in that order. Yuri Gagarin's path to space had also been interrupted by World War II. His family had to move out of Moscow. He worked on a collective farm for a time and had to leave school. But he made his way back to an education and joined an aviation club, and then joined the Air Force. Gagarin impressed and delighted almost everyone who met him. With his honesty, humility, calm, intelligence, and his, quote, "'open, smiling face,' unquote. Korolev, the chief designer of spacecraft, invited the cosmonauts to sit inside a spacecraft when they arrived, and Gagarin took his shoes off to be respectful. And from then on, he had endeared himself to the heads of the program. On April 12th, 1961, Three weeks after Bondarenko's death, the Soviets succeeded in launching Yuri Gagarin into orbit around the Earth, making him the first man in space. The flight was only one orbit long, 108 minutes from liftoff to landing. Gagarin successfully ejected from the spacecraft 23,000 feet in the air and parachuted down to the ground and straight into international fame. And a world press tour, where he charmed world leaders and cheering crowds alike. The rest of the cosmonauts at Star City, still grieving the death of the group's baby Bondarenko, were likely thrilled by this accomplishment, although probably a little jealous as well. One of them was Yuri Gagarin's best friend, Vladimir Komarov. Vladimir Mikhailovich Komarov was born on March 16, 1927, in Moscow. He had one older half sister, Matilda, and his father was a laborer. Komarov began elementary school. he was eight years old and was noticed almost immediately for his skills in mathematics. His childhood was abruptly shifted in 1941 when he was 14 when World War II arrived. He began working on a collective farm to support the war effort. But Komarov didn't let the war stop him from dreaming of the stars. Since he was a child, he had been cutting photos of planes from magazines, putting together model airplanes and cutting propellers out of tin can lids. He spent hours in his attic watching the planes over the city from the window, and could even tell them apart just by sound. Komarov was not meant for a life as a farmer or a laborer like his father. Something always kept his eyes looking up instead of down at the plow. In 1942, at age 15, Komarov enlisted in the first Moscow Special Air Force school to start training in aviation as well as learning other, more traditional school subjects. While he was at school, Komarov's father was killed in the war. No more details were given to his family other than that. Around the same time, the air school was moved from Komarov's hometown of Moscow to Siberia in order to be better protected from the war. Komarov graduated in 1945 with honors, and by then, the war had ended. Instead of being shipped off to battle, Komarov began more specialized training at several military aviation schools. Sadly, Komarov's mother passed away seven months before he graduated in 1949. Komarov began his military career as a lieutenant. He became a fighter pilot and then a senior lieutenant. During this time, he also married a woman named Valentina Yakovlevna Kiselyova in the fall of 1950. He served as the chief pilot of a fighter pilot regiment from about 1952 to 1954 when he began studying engineering. In 1959, he started on a new path, becoming a test pilot. Komarov had raced through the skies for a decade, but something kept his eyes looking up even higher. The same year he began as a test pilot, he was promoted to engineer captain and applied to be a cosmonaut in that group of 3,000. Komarov made the cut to become one of the 20 men chosen for Air Force Group 1. Komarov lived in Star City with his wife, their son Yevgeny, and their daughter Irina. The other cosmonauts called Komarov Volodya, an affectionate nickname of his first name, and he was loved by pretty much everyone. During the training, Komarov was known for helping out the younger cosmonaut trainees with their academic work, and he and the 34-year-old trainee Belyaev were both affectionately called the professors. His friend and fellow trainee Pavel Popovich said of Komarov, He was already an engineer when he joined us. But he never looked down on the others. He was warm-hearted, purposeful, and industrious. Volodya's prestige was so high that people came to him to discuss all questions, personal as well as questions of our work, Unquote. Alexey Alexei Leonov, who was in his training group and also apparently did a lot of talking because like 85% of the sources from this episode mention him, said that Komarov was, quote, very serious. He was a first-class test pilot. Unquote. Komarov was one of the most qualified candidates. He was also the third highest paid of all the trainees because of his high rank. He helped design aircraft. He was one of the only two men in the group who had trained at the Air Force Academy, and he was the only one with experience as a flight test engineer. However, at 32, Komarov was the second oldest trainee. The chief designer of the Soviet space program, Sergei Korolev, had decided 27 was the maximum age for an ideal candidate. Komarov remained at the training center, but wasn't chosen as one of the top six pilots. Two months after Komarov arrived, he needed an operation which prevented him from training for six months. The program considered cutting him, but because of his extensive qualifications and bright mind, he was allowed to stay after promising he could catch up while recovering. And he started back a month earlier than expected. In 1961, the cosmonauts began participating in space flights. In May 1962, Komarov was able to replace Georgi Shonin for the Vostok mission when Shonin showed too much negative reaction to G-forces in training. He was supposed to be a backup for Pavel Popovich on the Vostok 4 mission, but a medical test showed that Komarov had a heart irregularity, atrial fibrillation, and he was pulled out of the Vostok mission. But Komarov wasn't going to give up easily. He argued with the program staff for months until he was allowed back in. In 1963, the cosmonauts were broken up into six training groups. Komarov was placed in Group 2, along with Valery Bikovsky and Boris Volyanov, who actually replaced him as the backup for Vostok 4. Group 2 started to train for missions planned later that year. Komarov was pushed forward as the backup for Vostok 5 because his spacesuit was ready. In April of 1964, Having completed over two years of training at Star City, Komarov was officially declared ready for spaceflight. By July, there were seven men eligible to be part of the crew of Vashkot-1. That month, Komarov was originally named as the commander of the backup crew for the mission. The ship was intended to carry one crew member, but was modified to carry three, so that it would outdo the American Gemini ships. And I say modified lightly. They were really packed in there. The final crew was argued about for months, but on October 4th, 1964, Komarov was officially chosen as the commander for the primary crew, eight days before launch. Yegorov and Konstantin Fyoktostov were chosen as the other two crew members. Komarov was the only one with flight experience at all, and he was given the call sign Ruby in English. The head of cosmonaut training, Kamanin played tennis with the crew that night, and Kamanyan reported that Komarov played worse than usual. Whether it was nerves, or just an off day, or the general stress of having your boss examine your every move, even when you were supposed to be relaxing, is unclear. The Soviet state press took photos of the crew several days later, playing tennis again, and inspecting the spacecraft. On October 11th, it was launch day. The crew did a final inspection. Komarov was given several communist objects to take with them into space. The launch went well. Komarov sent a message from space to the Tokyo Olympics, which had started the day before. He and the other two crew members did several tests for 24 hours and observed the Aurora Borealis. They landed safely and were taken back to the launch site. Kamanyin noted that the two other crew members seemed to be in a good mood, but Komarov seemed tired, which seems fair after spending over a full day in outer space. Leave him alone, Kamanyin. After they landed, Chief Designer Korolev said that he was actually shocked the crew arrived back alive after they squeezed three people in a spaceman for one. The team visited the Kremlin and the Red Square to celebrate their mission success, although they didn't make as much news as expected because of major political changes. Nikita Khrushchev, the former head of the country, was replaced by Leonid Brezhnev. Komarov was promoted to colonel and awarded the Order of Lenin and official status of hero of the Soviet Union. Komarov and several other cosmonauts toured the Soviet Union and West Germany. He and Yuri Gagarin helped prepare the crew of Voskhod 2 which would be the first attempt of any human to try and leave a spacecraft in outer space, which was successful. Well, that was your feel-good part of the episode. The next mission, not so much. Next, three cosmonauts were chosen for the Soyuz program. Komarov, Alexei Leonov, and Yuri Gagarin. In 1967, Brezhnev, the new head of the Soviet Union, wanted to do a magnificent display of space technology to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Communist Revolution. The idea was that one spaceship would be launched into orbit, Soyuz 1. Soyuz translates to Union, or Alliance, in English, which many people take to be a reference to the Soviet Union, but also could have been a reference to the planned display. The day after Soyuz 1 was launched with Komarov, a second ship, Soyuz 2, would be launched and the two ships would meet up, forming a union, so to speak. Komarov would climb into the second ship, trading places with one of the three cosmonauts of the other ship. Komarov and the other cosmonauts would come home in Soyuz 2, and the third cosmonaut would pilot Soyuz 1 back to Earth, which was quite a plan on a tight timeline. A recipe for success, right? During the development of the Soyuz spacecraft, Komarov and the other cosmonauts fought repeatedly with the administrators and other engineering staff over the design of the ship. Komarov believed the exit hatch was too small to fit a Cosma in a full suit. The team kept being reassigned to different projects within the Soyuz program, confusing them even more. Komarov, who had always been strong-willed, started to clash openly with the program administrators. On a tour of Japan in 1966, he revealed the Soviet plan to fly an automated spacecraft around the moon and then return to Earth which wasn't supposed to be public knowledge yet. Whether this was intentional or an accident, I don't know. Gagarin and Komarov and the other senior engineers found hundreds of problems with Soyuz 1. They knew that the only safe option would be to postpone the launch. According to the book Starman, the engineers put together a letter to the higher-ups with their concern. It was officially from Gagarin as he was the most respected and the least likely to incur the wrath of the Communist Party leaders. He gave it to a KGB agent, Venyamin Rusayev, but no one would send it to the people in charge. Anyone who tried could be fired. They were fighting for anybody to listen to their concerns about the safety of Soyuz 1, but no one seemed to hear them. At one point, Komarov reportedly said of the capsule, devil machine, nothing I lay my hands on works, that Soyuz 1 would not be postponed. Later on, one of the project engineers wrote a memoir after coming to America and said, quote, Some launches were made almost exclusively for propaganda purposes. An example was the ill-fated flight of Vladimir Komarov in Soyuz 1. The management of the design bureau knew that the vehicle had not been completely debugged. More time was needed to make it operational but the Communist Party ordered the launch, despite the fact that four preliminary launches had revealed faults, unquote. The engineer also said that the deputy chief designer, Vasily Mishin, had objected to the launch, but the launch went forward. Then came the decision for who was going to pilot this piece of junk. They knew whoever was chosen would likely never return. Komarov was picked. Komarov reportedly said to that KGB agent, Rusayev, a month before the mission, Quote, I'm not going to make it back from this flight, Rusev asked. If you're so convinced you're going to die, then why don't you refuse the mission? Komarov reportedly said, crying, if I don't make this flight, they'll send the backup pilot instead. That's Yura, and he'll die instead of me. We've got to take care of him, unquote. Yuri Gagarin was the backup pilot for the mission, so if Komarov refused, he was supposed to be sent instead. So he agreed to go. Before he left, reportedly told his friends that his funeral needed to be open casket. Then the Soviet leaders would have to look at what they had done to him. Gagarin and Komarov worked for 12 to 14 hours a day while training for the spaceflight. According to one journalist, Yuri Gagarin showed up on the day of the launch and demanded to take his friend's place. It didn't work. They were never going to let the national hero fly, even if he wanted to. Whatever really did happen before the launch... It's a fact that when Soyuz 1 was launched on April 23, 1967, Komarov was inside. Things went wrong immediately. Komarov said to ground control, quote, Conditions are poor. The cabin parameters are normal, but the left solar panel didn't deploy. The electrical buses is at only 13 to 14 amperes. The high-frequency communications are not working. I cannot orient the spacecraft to the sun. I tried orienting the spacecraft manually, using the DO-1 orientation engines, but the pressure remaining on the DO-1 has gone down to 180, unquote, which is a bunch of engineering talk for the ship was not working. He lost contact with the ground sometime during his orbits. He struggled to fix the spacecraft's orientation to the sun for five hours. The team on the ground canceled the launch of the second Soyuz model. They told Komarov to use the ion sensors on the ship to reorient it, but those sensors also failed. After 19 orbits around the Earth, he finally fixed it and re-entered the atmosphere. But things continued to go wrong. The main parachute failed to deploy. A secondary chute was opened but tangled up with the failed main chute. Soyuz 1 crashed into Earth's surface at about 80 miles per hour and immediately exploded into flames. The official Soviet transcript of Komarov's last moments Reads as follows. Komarov. Activated. Activated. Don't worry. Everything is in order. Ground. Understood. We're also not worried. How do you feel? How's everything? Zarya. Over. I feel excellent. Everything's in order. Understood. Our comrades here recommend that you take a deep breath. We're waiting for the landing. This is Zarya. Over. Thank you for transmitting all that. Separation occurred. Rubin. This is Zarya. Understood. Separation occurred. Let's work during the break. Ruby, this is Zarya. How do you hear me? Over. Ruby, this is Zarya. How do you hear me? Over. This is Zarya. How do you hear me? Over. Now, that's the official Soviet transcript. The StarMad book claims that a U.S. intelligence listening post outside of Istanbul intercepted some very different communications, where Komarov was enraged, cursing the space program and Brezhnev, who forced him to his death. It also claims that there was a call with his wife and the Soviet leaders who cried and apologized for sending him there. There's also an audio clip floating around the internet on Amazon, of all places, which is possibly from the communication recording of Komarov and the ground control, but I really can't find any information about it. According to some translations, Komarov says, Heat is rising in the capsule, unquote, and something about being killed. The truth is unclear. It's possible that it's somewhere between the two, with Komarov expressing concerns that the Soviets later took out of the transcript. However, the most likely situation is that although Komarov knew he was in serious danger during the botched mission, he wouldn't have been able to tell that the parachutes didn't deploy until his final moments, when communication with, with mission control would have been completely blocked. It would have seemed that he had made it through the troubles with the ship once he was able to return to Earth until the descent was almost over. Whatever he said during that time when no one could hear him is a mystery, although I certainly wouldn't have blamed him if that involved cussing out the space program once he realized that the horrible trap that was Soyuz 1 really did fail him after all. When the capsule arrived back on Earth, the Soviet space program quickly figured out what they had done to one of their best and most well-loved cosmonauts. Komarov's body had been completely melted. All that was left of him was a hardened rock, with only his heel identifiable. A group of Soviet leaders came to the site of the crash and brought Komarov's remains to the Orsk airport. They covered the remains of the ship itself with an officer's hat. A group of cosmonauts and the head of the Aircraft Design Bureau flew in early in the morning the next day to an airport 20 miles outside the city in miserable weather. The team was instructed to photograph Komarov's body, if it could still be called that, conduct an autopsy, and then cremate him. Komarov was given an official state funeral in Moscow. The American astronauts asked to send a representative to pay their respects, but their request was denied. His ashes were placed inside the Kremlin wall necropolis in the Red Square, and he was posthumously made a hero of the Soviet Union. On April 25th, 1968, 10,000 people attended a memorial service for Komarov at the site of the crash, and there's also a monument on the site today. There's a crater and an asteroid named for him, the 1836 Komarov. Composer Brett Dean wrote a piece for him called Komarov's Fall, which I did listen to, and does sound like the score of a terrifying sci-fi horror film, but it is a nice tribute. On April 25th, the same day as the memorial service, the other cosmonauts published an official response to Komarov's death. It read, quote, For the forerunners, it is always more difficult. They tread the unknown paths, and these paths are not straight. They have sharp turns, surprises, and dangers. But anyone who takes the pathway into orbit never wants to leave it. And no matter what difficulties or obstacles there are, they are never strong enough to deflect such a man from his chosen path. While his heart beats in his chest, a cosmonaut will always continue to challenge the universe. Vladimir Komarov was one of the first on this treacherous path. Unquote. The cosmonauts were surely shaken up by this, particularly the cosmonauts who were supposed to have participated in the same mission. In the aftermath of the crash, Soyuz 2, the ship that was supposed to meet up with Komarov, was checked over again, and it had the exact same parachute issue. If the Union hadn't been called off at the last moment, Krunov, Yeliseyev, and Bikovsky all would have died too. Yuri Gagarin was furious, and deeply guilty. He gave a newspaper interview on May 17th, where he said that the space program needed to be more thorough in testing. Quote, all the mechanisms of the spaceship, even more attentive to all stages of checking and testing, even more vigilant in our encounter with the unknown. Unquote. He also said that Komarov quote, has shown us how dangerous the pathway to space is. His flight and his death will teach us courage. Unquote. The next year, Gagarin and Leonov said that the chief designer Vasily Mission had. Quote, a poor knowledge of the Soyuz spacecraft and the details of its operation, his lack of cooperation in working with the cosmonauts in flight and training activities. Leonov also spoke about Komarov's death many decades later in a 2000 documentary. He said, quote, He was our friend. Before his death, the press and the public had paid little attention to the extreme risks that we took. Unquote. According to an account by that KGB agent, Rusayev, Yuri Gagarin came to visit him three weeks after the crash and asked to speak in the stairwell of the apartment building to avoid bugs. Gagarin said about Brezhnev, the head of the Soviet Union, quote, I must go see the main man personally. I'll get through to him somehow, and if I ever find out he knew about the situation and still let everything happen, then I know exactly what I'm going to do. End quote. Rusayev said he warned Gagarin to be careful. There is a rumor that Gagarin threw a drink at Brezhnev's face at a party, which probably didn't happen, but God, I hope it did. Tragically, despite Komarov's sacrifice to protect his friend, Yuri Gagarin was killed in a plane crash in 1968 at age 34. Gagarin had wanted to continue flying, but he was literally grounded. He watched his friends and even new cosmonauts fly multiple missions, but he was a national hero now and continuously put on backup crews to protect him. After Komarov's death, they were really not going to let Gagarin go back into space just for his own thrill. In 1968, the Soviet leadership allowed him to at least fly jets again, but this was a fatal mistake. His fifth flight after the permission was granted was his last. Gagarin's death was the subject of international speculation and theorizing for decades. The initial story was that Gagarin and the instructor, Vladimir Seryogin, moved quickly to avoid a bird and crashed. Rumors popped up that they had been drunk, or possibly shooting at a deer from the jet, which has to be the most Russian rumor I've ever heard, or even that the plane could have been sabotaged when the Soviet leadership had a conflict with Gagarin. But in 2013, the former cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, I told you this guy kept popping up, gave an interview where he revealed what's likely the truth. Another jet flew much lower than it was authorized to and passed right next to Gagarin's plane, forcing it into a tailspin and causing the crash. Declassified reports from the time seemed to back this up. Leonov, who was then 79 years old, said he was allowed to tell the story as long as he didn't reveal the name of the pilot responsible for the death, who was 80 years old and ill at the time the story broke. Leonov said, quote, He is a good test pilot. It would fix nothing. Unquote. Although, I have to imagine he's no longer a top test pilot at 80. The space program and the cosmonauts were devastated by the loss of two of their most beloved friends and mentors back-to-back but Gagarin's legacy is still felt in Star City today. Before flying to space, every cosmonaut visits Gagarin's old office, which has been preserved exactly as he left it. After each flight, they leave flowers by a statue of him nearby. In the office, on his desk, the calendar is left at March 27th, 1968, his uniform still on the coat rack, and the clock is stopped at the time the world lost the first man in space. Since Komarov's death, There have been 22 deaths of astronauts and cosmonauts, some of which I'll cover in the next episode, but one more major one on the Soviet side I'll mention briefly. In 1971, the Soviets suffered the only casualty of human beings that actually occurred in space. The crew that actually flew Soyuz 11, Georgi Dobrovolsky, Vladislav Volkov, and Viktor Patsayev, had been meant to be the backup crew. But one man on the primary team had a medical issue, later revealed to be an allergic reaction to pesticide, and a swap was made two days before the launch, in a major stroke of good luck for the primary crew and not-so-good luck for the secondary crew, although it would have seemed reverse at the time. Drobovolsky was a former Nazi fighting partisan who applied for the Air Force after his Navy application was sent in too late. Patsayev was a childhood sci-fi fan turned actual scientist, who joined the cosmonaut corps under encouragement from Volkov. Volkov was a handsome and artistic son of an aircraft engineer and an aircraft factory worker. All three of them were launched into national stardom when their ship was launched, and the public eagerly followed their three weeks in space. Patsayev was even the first person to celebrate a birthday in space, turning 38. The whole trip went well until the return to Earth, when a vent in the ship blew out and depressurized the capsule. The spaceship returned to Earth seemingly normal, as the landing was fully automatic, but there was silence in the capsule when communications came back online at touchdown. The ground crew opened the ship and were shocked to find the crew dead. The incident was later described by a higher-up in the Soviet space program, quote, Outwardly, there was no damage whatsoever. They knocked on the side, but there was no response from within. On opening the hatch... They found all three men in their couches, motionless, with dark blue patches on their faces and trails of blood from their noses and ears. They removed them from the descent module. Drobovolsky was still warm. The doctors gave artificial respiration. Based on their reports, the cause of death was suffocation. Unquote. A more detailed autopsy would show that they had actually died of brain hemorrhaging. Two of them had unstrapped to try and close the vent, But it was too fast for them to tell which vent had opened. They all died within a 110 seconds of the accident. There had been no chance of saving them when the ship landed, and they remained the only humans ever exposed to the vacuum of outer space. And I hope we can let them keep that record for a while longer. The Soviet public had been excitedly following the men's journey in space for weeks. Kamanyin was waiting patiently for the news of the successful touchdown only to be told the tragic news instead. It came in the form of three numbers, each number described a cosmonaut's health on a scale of one to five, with five being excellent and one being dead. Someone entered the room where Kamanyin and a veteran cosmonaut, Alexey Yeliseyev, were waiting and told them, one, one, one. Cosmonaut Alexei Leonov had advised the crew to close and open the air vents manually to avoid any possibility of this problem, but his friends had decided to follow their regular training procedure instead. The other major thing that could have saved them seems obvious in hindsight. They could have been wearing spacesuits. In response, both NASA and the Soviets changed their procedures to include spacesuits being worn the entirety of most space flights. The accident was announced to the public and nationally mourned. As one magazine explained, Now instead of three heroes bearing broad smiles and bedecked in medals and garlands of flowers, all the Soviet people had was three funerals. All three were made heroes of the Soviet Union and given enormous state funerals with tens of thousands of mourners, including Brezhnev, the head of the Soviet Union, who had to cover his face with his hands to hide his emotion at the ceremony. In a significant shift of policy, the details of the ship failure were shared with the American space program to prevent any similar tragedy, although these details were not shared with the Soviet public. As journalist James Oberg wrote, quote, It was enough for Soviet citizens to know they died gloriously. Unquote. The U.S. ambassador was allowed to attend the service and even be a pallbearer, a major change from the chilly rejection that came when the U.S. offered to send an astronaut to Komarov's funeral. The three men were buried near Gagarin and Komarov in the Red Square. And the next space-related casualty was in 1993, when Soviet cosmonaut-in-training Sergei Mozavikov drowned after being tangled in a fishing net during a survival training on the Black Sea. Those are all the Soviet space program deaths that we know of. The fact that the Soviets hid information about their space program has led to quite a bit of speculation that they hid other deaths that we still don't know about. The idea of the lost cosmonauts, also known as the phantom cosmonauts, is regarded as a conspiracy theory. But let me put on my tinfoil hat for a second and discuss it. The basic idea is that the Soviet space program sent some cosmonauts into space that we as the general public never heard about, likely before Yuri Gagarin's successful mission in 1967. Well before Yuri Gagarin's successful launch was announced, rumors circulated in the West about cosmonauts that the Soviets had erased from records. Entire lists of these supposed missing men were printed in newspapers. Most of these were lies. At least one was not. There is a famous photograph of the men called the Sochi Six, the top six men out of the original twenty cosmonauts. The photo was taken a few weeks after Yuri Gagarin's first flight, but there's two versions of the picture the official version and one that was later discovered to be the unedited original by American space engineer and journalist James Oberg, and it had one more man in the image. British researcher Rex Hall also discovered that five cosmonauts had been airbrushed out of a photo of 16 and replaced with bushes and other random scenery. This wasn't a huge surprise, considering the fact that the Soviets were known to alter historical photos and plenty of records throughout their rule. But the incident has led to quite a bit of discussion within the lost cosmonaut theory. What happened to these men? One of the remaining cosmonauts published a book in 1977 where he shared their first names and the reasons they left the program although several of these reasons were false. Mars Rafikov left for, quote, personal reasons, unquote. Three were injured. Anatoly Partashov had a skin bleeding problem after going through centrifuge tests, which I have no more details on, but sounds rough. Valentin Varlamov injured his neck while diving. Dmitry Zaikin developed ulcers. Details about... All these people were hidden. One man erased was, of course, Valentin Vondarenko. Another was a parachute instructor named Nikitin, who was also killed in an accident. Three other men who were hidden did not leave by choice. Grigory Nelyubov was one of the top candidates of the 20, destined to be one of the first men in space, the third in that ranking of the final six, if you remember. He was competitive, hot-headed, confident, And he did earn some of that confidence by being an exceptional trainee, but he was definitely not universally loved like Bondarenko and Komarov and Gagarin. The head of the space program, Kamanian didn't like him very much at all. Nelyubov was disappointed several times when he was passed over for mission assignments, but he continued to train with the top six. But one incident in 1963 would change that. Nelyubov and two other cosmonauts, Ivan Enikayev and Valentin Filatyev were drunk and traveling back to Star City after a weekend trip when they got in an argument with some security officers because they didn't have their identification papers. They were arrested, but then the security guards realized that they really were the cosmonauts they had claimed. The security team told them they would forgive the incident and let them go scot-free if they just apologized. The other two did immediately. Nelyubov, reported the egotistical about his high position in the Kasanak Corps, refused. The security officers filed their report. Kamanin was furious that they had embarrassed the program publicly. All three—Nelyubov, Anikeev, and, and Filatyev—were kicked out of the program. Nelyubov had not been well liked, but the others had, and they were furious that Nelyubov had cost all of them their dreams. Nelyubov was transferred back to the Air Force. The three remaining men from the original six got to fly, as well as Komarov and Leonov from the backup team. As Nelyabov watched from Siberia, he went into a deep, alcohol-fueled depression. He told his friends and colleagues about his previous life as a secret cosmonaut and a backup to the first man in space, but no one believed him. Five years later, he wrote a note to his wife, locked the doors of his apartment, climbed out the window into a snowstorm, and stepped in front of a train near his Air Force base in what was officially recorded as an accident, but was likely a suicide. His involvement in the Cosmonaut Corps wouldn't be revealed until 1986. The program leaders erased all these men from photographs, and they disappeared from history for several decades. This story was compiled by Russian journalist Yaroslav Golovanov, the same man who broke the news of Bondarenko's death. However... Rumors about the lost cosmonauts went far beyond the Soviets fudging some details and wiping some photographs. Rumors popped up in the early 60s that a man had been sent to space and killed in an accident by the Soviets. However, this was likely a case of mistaken identity. The Soviets did launch a man into space in 1961 before Yuri Gagarin, but he wasn't alive. It was a dummy called Ivan Ivanovich, the Russian equivalent of the name John Doe, who actually looked so similar to an actual human being that the word dummy had to be written on his forehead. I don't know who put the dummy together, or why they felt the need to make it so detailed, but they did. He was sent into space twice, along with dogs, mice, guinea pigs, reptiles, and an audio recording of a choir to test the audio system. The Soviets purposely chose a choir as the audio, instead of a more realistic man's voice, so that radio stations that picked up the noise wouldn't think that they had sent a real human. Good try, guys, that still happened. Vladimir Ilyushin may be the most well-known lost cosmonaut theory. The story generally goes that Ilyushin was the true first man in space, and the mission had gone horribly wrong. A British communist newspaper reported that Ilyushin had launched in a spaceship creatively named Russia, and that he had gone crazy from the launch gone wrong and the Soviets had covered it up with Gagarin's mission soon after. Other reports said he had crashed in China and been captured by the Chinese government, or that he had ended up in a coma. Some reports even went so far as to claim that Gagarin never actually went to space at all, and had just replaced Ilyushin for the announcement. There were entire movies made about this theory, including the 1999 film called The Cosmonaut Cover-Up and the 2009 film Fallen Idol* the Yuri Gagarin Conspiracy, which alleged the U.S. hid records that they had of the mission. However, no record of a launch fitting this description was discovered in declassified Soviet papers or North American monitoring agencies. Ilyushin was actually a Soviet test pilot, but he never went to space, and it was announced that he had been seriously injured in a car crash a few days before Gagarin's official launch. Two brothers from Italy, Mario and Luigi, no- sorry, wrong notes, Achille and Giovanni Giudica Cordiclia claimed that they picked up audio recordings of lost cosmonauts in the early 1960s. They released nine recordings, which included an SOS message in Morse code, the sounds of several cosmonauts leaving orbit and flying out into deep space, a woman screaming that she was burning, and several cosmonauts crying out as they were killed. Luckily, all these recordings appear to be fake the Russian heard in the recordings has grammatical errors and doesn't use any kind of standardized language like a trained cosmonaut in Russian native speaker would sound like. Also, the rockets used in the early Soviet space program didn't have the power to leave Earth's orbit, even if they wanted to, which would have made the cause about veering off into deep space impossible. There was another theory that the Soviets had rushed a moon launch attempt where the rocket exploded and killed everyone on board. A story went around of a man named Andrei Mikoyan, who was alleged to be killed in this rushed moonshot. However, this was almost definitely based on an episode of the 1996 TV show, The Cape, which involves American astronauts finding a Soviet spaceship drifting in space with a dead cosmonaut named Andrei Mikoyan, who had been killed in a failed moonshot to beat NASA. In 1959, a Czech communist leader supposedly leaked information about cosmonauts named Lidovsky, Mitkov, Shavorin, and Grimova, that he had claimed died inside of missiles. The same year, an Italian news source spread this information with the same names, but there was no evidence found to support this. Also in 1959, a Russian magazine brought up the idea of several cosmonauts dying in high-altitude parachute tests. They published photos of four men. Pyotr Dolgov, Ivan Kachur, Alexei Grachov, and Grenady Zavadovsky. Now, these men did actually die. Soviet records indicate that Dolgov died in 1962 while jumping from a balloon at 93,960 feet when his head hit the gondola and depressurized his suit. Kotcher was likely involved in these tests and disappeared around the same time as Dolgov died. Later, Zavodovsky was added to the official list of cosmonauts who had been killed, but there were no details released. A journalist ended up tracking down a retired Soviet parachutist named Alexei Belikonov, who confirmed that none of these men, nor Ilyushin, nor himself, ever went to space as rumors claim. The revelation that the Soviets covered up the death of Valentin Bondarenko and the fact that he definitely existed has added quite a bit of energy to this discussion. But there's no concrete evidence that any other cosmonaut existed that we don't know about now. Several journalists and researchers have dug into this theory and have found no evidence of any lost cosmonauts. The Soviet Union fell 30 years ago, so we probably would have found out by now if there were any more. But you never know. Modern-day Russia isn't known for being particularly loose with information, either. Of course, The Lost Cosmonauts have inspired quite a few pop culture references, including the villain of the video game Metal Gear Solid 3, the movie Apollo 18, several novels, and a song by the band Wolf Parade, which features lyrics like, So when they turn the cameras on you, baby, please don't speak of me. Point up to the dark above you as they edit me from history. I'm 20 million miles from my comfortable home, and space is very cold." Unquote. When Apollo 11 landed on the moon in 1969, Neil Armstrong placed a memorial on the lunar surface to Komarov, Gagarin, and the three American astronauts from Apollo 1, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Later, a plaque was left by David Scott on the Apollo 15 mission, honoring the 14 astronauts who had died by 1971, the known astronauts, at least. A tiny metal astronaut sculpture lies there to this day as well, called Fallen Astronaut. Space journalist James Oberg wrote, Quote, paradoxically, the hero-worshipping Soviets denied at least one genuine space-age hero, Valentin Bondarenko, his proper tribute and recognition because of their irrational, insistent secrecy. His tragic death in 1961 in the line of duty was not revealed for a quarter of a century. In the meantime, the Apollo 15 astronauts had left a plaque on the moon in 1971 in honor of fallen space heroes, both American and Russian. Vondarenko's name is not on it, and it should have been. How many other names should also have been there remains to be determined." So if the next man to land on the moon happens to be listening to this podcast episode right now, please put Valentin Bondarenko's name on the moon. Thank you. Space travel has always been dangerous. The rise of private companies dipping their toes into spaceflight and national space agencies considering unprecedented human missions like a trip to Mars will continue to be dangerous. But mankind has been looking up at the stars and dreaming and hoping and planning and thinking of ways to get there for thousands of years. And that's not stopping anytime soon. I'm going to end with a poem that was quoted in Ronald Reagan's Challenger speech called High Flight by John Gillespie McGee, a British-American World War II pilot who wrote it before he was killed in a mid-air collision. Quote. Quote. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings. Sunward I have climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of. Wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence, hovering there. I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up, the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace, where never lark or ever eagle flew. And while, with silent, lifting mind, I've trod, the high and trespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. Thank you for listening to Campfire Stories. Astonishing History. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast app, I'd love it if you leave a positive review. If you're listening on YouTube, I encourage you to like this video and leave a comment with an idea for another episode. Your theories about this case, or anything else you'd like to say. Have a great rest of your day, campers, and I'll see you back around the campfire soon. interested in starting your own podcast, check out Buzzsprout. I use Buzzsprout to host this show and get listed on all the major podcasting apps, find sponsors, and track statistics. If you sign up with my link, you get a $20 Amazon gift card when you upgrade to a paid plan. Let me know if you make a podcast. I'd love to follow your show. Fiverr is the perfect place to find high-quality freelancers for any budget, who do everything from writing and translation design, video editing, tutoring, programming, genealogy, souvenir collecting, and a ton of other incredible services. Check it out using the link in the description to tell them that I sent you. Thank you for supporting the show.